0: Hello and welcome to the Goal 4 podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. To include a diverse group of students within a classroom, and every group of students you ever see will be diverse, a teacher must be able to adapt to the needs of every learner. Sure, good teachers do this automatically, but not all can. Some teachers, either overburdened or undertrained, or both, just teach for the majority, for the average. For those that can sit comfortably within a bell curve. This is understandable. With many children in a class and exam pressure piling up on them, most teachers will do what they can for the largest number of students. In these cases, students at each end of this curve are the ones that miss out. It must be added here that I strongly believe that it's education systems that have to change and I'm certainly not laying any blame at the door of teachers. Far from it. Such a bell curve of ability as I've described it here, is shaped by what we value and what we measure in education. And it's important to acknowledge that phrases such as gifted students or struggling or A-plus and F-minus are only relevant to a certain system. These categories would be turned on their head if learning and achievement were assessed differently or certain skills were prized above others. If you don't believe me, Just look at all the school dropouts that have gone on to become highly successful business moguls. Artists, athletes, inventors, or general pillars of society. They haven't changed, but their environment has. The same skills that were not valued in school, creativity, problem-solving, courage, inventiveness, help them to succeed in the real world. Okay, point made, I think. We're here today to actually talk about inclusive pedagogy as an alternative approach inclusive pedagogy offers a partial response to three interrelated problems of educational inequality. One, those that are associated with organizational and pedagogical strategies based on bell curve distributions. Two, the identification of additional support needs. And three, the disproportionate statistical representation of certain minority groups in special education. Not my words, but the words of my esteemed guest, Professor Lani Florian. Among her many other achievements, Lani is Bell Chair of Education at the University of Edinburgh and Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. She joins me today from Edinburgh. Lani Florian, welcome to Goal 4. Hello
1: Richard, it's great to be here.
0: Well, thanks for coming on. It's, It's fantastic to have you on the show. I wanted to kick off by asking, what does the phrase inclusive education mean to you?
1: Inclusive education for me is a belief system. It is about the idea that everyone belongs. You sometimes hear that expressed as all means all, or uh, uh, there was a time when people talked about zero reject, that no one should be excluded from school. Um, You know, it's this idea of everyone being entitled to a quality educational experience. For me, that is predicated on a belief and the idea that the capacity to learn is open-ended and that that holds true, that's a universal thing. Uh, It doesn't matter who you are, your capacity to learn is open-ended. And that whether or not that capacity is enhanced or inhibited by the kind of educational opportunities we make is a different question. But inclusion is about understanding that, and then believing that everyone, you know, and then the everyone belongs follows from
0: that. I think that's so important to understand. And it's often the case that people have quite different understandings of what inclusion means, right? If you go in different contexts and different regions, different countries, is that is that a big issue? Do you think that there's lots of different ways of understanding this topic?
1: Well, I do think there are lots of different ways of understanding it. Some of those are related to the uh, evolution of the concept, uh, the history of the idea, the, um, the thinking that propelled it as a movement. You know, all of those things will influence the starting points that people in different jurisdictions will make. Um, and th- that different stakeholders will make depending on you know what their responsibilities are but because my focus has almost exclusively been on practice and the implementation of the idea and the um the, the meaning that uh, practitioners make of it uh and the ways in which their practices you know meet a standard of inclusion, uh, which again is a Another t- important topic we can talk about if you we go in that direction, but uh, has always really fascinated me, and I, I say that in part because there are many things that are done in the name of inclusion or inclusive education to the point where it it it, it fuels this debate of it's a meaningless concept because you know you can just about anything people can claim that a practice is inclusive, and I I'm not always sure that I agree.
0: It's interesting you talk about being quite focused on the practitioners and the implementation of inclusion, because I wanted to ask about some of your best known work, which is on inclusive pedagogy. Uh, this is a way of working that can improve educational outcomes for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we unpack this? What do you mean by inclusive pedagogy?
1: Mm-hmm. Inclusive pedagogy is a very specific term in, in in my own work, and I came to that uh, in part because of the problem I just described, where almost any practice was being um, uh, promoted in the literature as inclusive. People would talk about um, you know things that were were quite segregated practices but still you know they they were renaming special education practices as inclusive education. It, it is a, is a short way of saying that. And I felt like that wasn't quite right. That didn't, and, and people were arguing about, did it count? Was it this, was it that? In the same way that they argue about the definition and is it this, is it that? And for me, it was about what's the quality of the experience that the child has? Do they feel like they belong? Uh, is there a good outcome of their experience of schooling? Do they have friends? Are they happy? Are they learning? You know, those kinds of questions. And there was also in my experience, both as a practitioner and as a researcher, this, this very, very strong awareness that you, this, it's not the child, it's the way we respond to the child that makes the difference. And so you may be in a school system where this has an inclusive ethos, highly sophisticated practices, and things go swimmingly well. And then your family moves for some reason and all of a sudden the school system saying "Um, we can't accommodate the special need and you need to go somewhere else. Now, how is it possible? The child's still the same child, but in school A, you know, the structures are in place to support him or her and in school B, they're not. So I've always been interested in that. Like, what's the difference? What's happening there? So inclusive pedagogy came from the studies that myself and Christine Black-Hawkins and Martin Rouse undertook that looked at that very very specifically. And we did that work by saying, uh, you know, what is it that teachers in schools that have um, uh, reputations for uh, being good at inclusion, what are they doing? How do we understand what they're doing? What can we learn from them? And then importantly, how can we share that learning with others? so inclusive pedagogy is the theorizing that we've done on the basis of what we learned from studying the practices of teachers who were good at this so when and and, and the, that idea about the open ended capacity to learn is something that 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 that's 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 a terminology we use um but that's you know that's how we've described the way the teachers talk about how they saw the children as learners we also Uh, Under, you know, we, these teachers in our studies were people who saw this as their responsibility. They didn't think that some children were the responsibility of others. Having said that. They also understood that they didn't know everything about every kind of difficulty that a child might encounter in learning along the way. And, and that the, the collaboration and the, the, um, the, the um, idea that you may need support and help to be able to include a child in a meaningful way in the classroom was something that they embraced. Um, they did not see that as a, as a job of someone else. So, you know, and and, and when you put all of that together, you really are talking about everybody. And when you do put that together in a way where you, you know, you're focused on the learning achievements of each and every child, you will get good outcomes for everyone.
0: Yeah. And that's something I want to come back to later when we talk about when we say every child, we do mean every child. Um, But parking that for a moment, this ties in so closely with your work on Uh, teacher education because Mm -hmm. you know they're on the front line of inclusion it's often said uh, Mm -hmm. that's who's standing in front of the children every day. Um, Mm -hmm. In the context of promoting inclusion and diversity then why is it so important that teachers are trained to a high level in that respect?
1: That's a great question and I'm glad you asked that. It's one I'd like to take one second to unpack uh, before (laughs) answering it Um, and and it's it's one again that I have been influenced by the history of efforts to provide high level training for teachers so that they're more inclusive in their practice and what has come out of that for me is that there have been two basic models within teacher preparation programs one is the add on model. We all get an extra course, a workshop, um, uh, 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 guest speakers, you know, we get extra stuff that's about difference. The other one is um, called an infusion model in the literature. And that's where we take competencies or ideas associated with what counts as the knowledge base around either special needs education or diversity or inclusion and we infuse that into the training for teachers um and i suppose the third one is we just have specialist teachers and then we we tell them you need to work with the mainstream teachers uh, that's another you know time honored model that's still you know in practice in many many jurisdictions and i myself was a special education teacher and I trained uh, and uh, teachers who taught children with additional support needs, or you know, who worked with very diverse groups of children. So when we started to do this work on achievement and inclusion in schools, and then we started thinking about what would that mean, uh, you know, we, we came to this understanding that a lot of a lot of times people will resist including children that are perceived as being difficult for whatever reason, um, because the teacher doesn't feel qualified to work with the child because there's a parallel system in place to support that so-called difference. And, you know, there's also been a lot of work around what is special pedagogy, does it exist, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the day, I think that the theorizing we did around achievement And inclusion from our studies of teachers practice brought us to this idea that if this is done, the the infusion model, the models that we have are limited in what they've been able to achieve in promoting the inclusion agenda. And what we need to do is just start from scratch with this teacher education for inclusion um, work that I've been involved in has said you start you start with all meaning all you start with everybody you start with basic principles about learning and if you adopt a sociocultural perspective on learning for example then you that naturally takes you to the place of learning of, of, the, of an open-ended capacity to learn you know there are specific um, psychologists and learning theorists who have done tremendous work on this. And it's about taking that knowledge base and saying, you know, like this and being able to show how that's an inclusive orientation. And then once you do that, then it all becomes about everybody altogether instead of something for most children and something extra for some children.
0: So we have the, the add-on model and the infusion model. And from the way you're you're speaking about them, it sounds like the the infusion model is a lot more of a a, a positive step in the right direction. Well, it depends or on is it what you're infusing. A bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, that's, more that's yeah.
1: That. Depends <laughs> on what you're infusing. Because again, you know, I trained in the states at a time when the behavioral psychology was a dominant theoretical perspective in special needs education, and I um, I have no problem with that. Um, and in fact, you know, it's it's been really useful and continues to be really useful. But it doesn't tell the whole story. And a lot of times, you know, a resistance to you know the, the the work that was done using that model has always been very much focused on individual needs. And so then it all becomes about the individual needs of a person, and we stop thinking about the child in the context of the learning of of all of the people in the classroom and so then you've got this really cumbersome model where you're trying to like what you're import you're importing special education practices into the mainstream and there are a lot of extra work for the teacher teacher doesn't want to do it or the teacher needs a lot more extra help and then you get a specialist who comes in and only works with one child and it perpetuates the the, the you know perpetuates the repetition of exclusion rather than the facilitation of inclusion. Uh, so you can you can use those strategies, but what I'm arguing is if you you need to change the way you think about how they should be applied and how you might work with others. And if you're thinking about it in a way that says learning is relational and the learning is, is it's you know it's a social act and it's happening, it's happening for everyone in that in that system, then you are going to think about how you how you use the knowledge that you have about learning in support of a more collaborative kind of process. And and again, uh, that's what we that's the theorizing that we did, having observed teachers practice in many varied environments.
0: Um, It's interesting you talking about um, the extra work for teachers and the extra support needed because I was a teacher myself as well. And I could see firsthand how this was such quite a contentious topic in a staff room because I think from a moral standpoint, almost every teacher I've I've known has been pro inclusion in, in, in air quotes, that they're, they're, they're really up for bringing diversity into their classrooms. What they perhaps worry about is an extra workload is um, extra training that they perhaps need that they haven't received? Uh, just the issues you've you've been talking about. Is there a is there a way around that? Do we have to look deeper perhaps at education systems and w- what they're all about and about the about the learning that's being pushed and the the assessment style? Because teachers are pretty overburdened as it is with. Um...
1: Well, uh, there absolutely is an argument that can be made for that, but. You know, again, I'm quite practical um, in my own um, approach to this work because, you know, there's real children with real needs in classrooms today that we need to respond to while we're waiting for systems change and, you know, macro level reforms. Um, And it's easy to call for those. And I certainly would be the first to say, and i've written extensively about this that, that you know it's the bell curve structure of schooling that that is the biggest barrier to um the idea of inclusion you know to to implement a concept of inclusion the way i described it in a school system that's that's designed in a way that you know we 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 are constantly kind of um uh, in, in importing the concept of the bell curve and the winners and the losers and the high stakes and the achievement and the you know the, these kinds of ideas of normal and ab, you know and abnormal and and all of that. Uh, so that's that's the structure that makes it extra work for teachers. Um, you know, especially using the assessment uh, regimes that we use, etc. So um, and and I think that. It's not enough to say the bell curve's no good um, because it is the organizational structure of schooling. and it does serve a purpose. You know it's like behavioral psychology it has its uses. Um, but it's it's not the whole package. Um, and so what happens is with the bell curve model is you get the teach to the middle, you get the the you know the norms and you get that's good for most children and that's true. Uh, And then there'll be some children that will need something additional or extra. And then it becomes, how do you deliver that? And that's where the the sorting, the segregating and all of that comes in. And then the questions about all the time, some of the time, part of the time, which ones, what do you call it? And we spend all our time kind of like managing this huge bureaucracy that at the end of the day doesn't help us very much in terms of learning outcomes for, for groups of children.
0: Well, let's talk about children in a class, because your research challenges the assumption that inclusion of children who find learning difficult can have detrimental effects on the achievement of other children Mm -hmm. in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And this is quite a common, if perhaps misplaced fear, I think particularly among parents who feel their child will miss out on teaching time, for instance, if there's a high level of diversity in their classroom. And you argue the opposite. You say that high levels of inclusion can promote the achievement of all students, -hmm. Rather than detract from them. Uh, Can you elaborate on this?
1: Yeah, there's two parts to this. Um, One has to do with the the worry that parents of children for whom the additional resources are set aside in the first place don't want that watered down. They want their child to get their allotment, their allocation. Um, I guess allotment's the wrong word, their allocation. Um, and, uh, on the other hand, you also have the parents of other children in the class who feel like that's a drain on, you know, that's resources that would be better placed in, in terms of promoting even higher or more achievement or, you know, something different for, uh, everybody else. And, and, that you know, very small groups of children are getting too much resource. And we see this played out all the time. Um, and again, I feel like in, in in the work that I do, it's very hard to, you have to understand that dynamic and that structure, but at the end of the day, you also have to say, here's this group of children, and what's my job in making sure that this is a good experience for each and every one of them, and sometimes, if you can, and you need, what I argue, and what I say to the teachers I work with is this is very labor intensive in the planning side of things, because you have to take account of individual differences. I would be the first person to say they exist and they matter and they're important. You need to take account of them, but you need to take account of them in a way that doesn't reproduce exclusion or marginalize some children or, uh, or, or, or function in ways that actually is disruptive to the learning of others that can happen. And when that happens, I would say the standard of inclusion is not being met. So don't call that inclusion. Don't say inclusion doesn't work. Say the implementation has failed. That's how I would argue that. And I think, you know. uh, so we we have seen this and then the case studies we've done, there are lots of examples of this and other people, there are many examples in the literature. It's about the way you deploy the resource. It's not what is the resource. You can be in a school that has, um, uh, that's in the UK, we would call an additionally resourced school. They might have a unit for children with autism or something like that. You know, there's that, that's the way the resource comes into the school. Now that's a, that's a systemic issue that gets dealt with at another level. The teacher can't do much about that. They have to work within that. So how do you work within that structure in a way that doesn't marginalize some children? That's the question. That's that's where the 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 teachers that I'm that I think about need to be asking themselves that question. How do I work with my colleagues in ways that where I get to bring the expertise that they have into the classroom and share that? Um, Because a lot of what they're going to be offering will be beneficial for everybody in that classroom. um, uh, On the one hand, and on the other hand, make sure that the children who you know for whom that that uh, that service was set up. Don't feel like they are the um, the children that are being excluded from something because they have to go to this special place where the the not so smart kids are going. And they all know that they know, you know, and, and they 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 figure that out no matter what we call it within schooling. And so it's the teacher's job to, you know, have that awareness and then think about their own role in that. Are they making that worse? Are they doing things to make that better? Are there other ways that they can think about how they plan and implement their lessons that help to break that barrier down and improve the quality of the experience for the child? That's the labor intensive part of the work. And I think that once you get that right with you within your classroom or within your your curriculum subject area within your your year group team things go really well for everybody. But it's hard work and it's very uh, much the planning that has to go into that shouldn't be underestimated. But then the yeah. delivery is usually pretty smooth sailing in my experience.
0: Okay, well it's often said that teaching is a uh, 90% planning right and a 10% delivery i'm not sure if mine quite lived up to those uh <laughs> those standards <laughs> um certainly uh, maybe the other way around but um yeah well this is when we're talking about all children learning in a class uh this is definitely in line with the message put forward by international organisations such as the un and others that in terms of inclusion all means all we've said it before um that's the phrase that's that's commonly used at the moment. In your view, all does mean all. In the view of some, all means most, perhaps. Can you envision classrooms where absolutely no one is excluded from educational opportunities, including learners with profound and multiple learning disabilities? And if so, what needs to happen to make this a reality?
1: The fact that all means all does not mean that there are differences, important differences between learners that need to be attended to. And again, it's it's the way you attend to those differences that matters. So, for example, um, you know, we have these very crude models in in many ways. One is everybody all together all the time. You know, that's what some people who, pers- who you know, subscribe to this view of, of full inclusion, everybody all together all the time. It's no curriculum differentiation. Good teaching is good teaching. I personally, you know, I do not subscribe to that view. You know, I, I do believe in full inclusion, um, but I, I would not say that good teaching is good teaching and that's just, you know, good teaching is good teaching, but doesn't mean that, that good teaching requires us to take account of differences. So, you know, this this what we do for one is good for everybody's stuff is, is uh, you know, kind of not, doesn't cut it for me. Um, the other one of differentiated options for different kinds of learners um, you know, that can work depending on how you do it. So if you differentiate your options by having specialist um, cl- specialized classrooms or ability grouping or um, you know different types of provision for different types of learners, these are all bog standard systemic organizing principles. Now you can you can have those, but then it's how do you run them? How do you manage them? How do you, you know, what are the things that you do that prevent, you, you know, t- you, how do you take account of the potential stigmatizing effect of those structures? That's where it's at for me. Like that's the job and the challenge and the task. And, and you know, so some people would say that's um, everybody together for most of the time with some differentiated options. And I think that can work as well. Um, but again, you know, where the challenge comes in that you do that in a way that, you, that, that makes people feel good about their achievements. There's an example of a school in our second edition of Achievement and Inclusion in Schools where the school relied on ability grouping as a structural way of organizing learning within the school. Now, on the surface, I would go into that school thinking, well, that's not right. Um, and I would argue very forcefully that ability grouping you know, has its place, but it's not the only grouping strategy we have. There are many other ones and that we should be looking at ways to mix that up. Now, what the school did that was so um, interesting in my view is that they stuck to their guns about the ability grouping, but the way they implemented it was amazing. And the kids, the children in the school, the young people accepted it. So what they they had all of the teachers taught all of the groups. So the children and the, and the groups, the ability groups, you know, got mixed up in terms of what was the subject. So it's not like you were tracked. So if you were in the low group, you were in the low group for everything, but also if you were in the so-called low group, you also might've had the, the teacher that was also teaching the, the top group. The top set, so there wasn't this sense of you got the good teacher. You know, there was there was this, and and when you talk to the children about well, what, well, how do you feel about being in that group? They felt really good about it because they knew that all of the teachers knew them, and the teachers understood where they were in their learning, and the school was so focused on your personal best and your your starting point and the, the, some of those formative assessment principles that they were using in their pedagogical practice, the in the way they were breathing the air in that school and the focus on positive destinations for the children. So this was a secondary school. And the idea was everybody had someplace meaningful to go and meaningful to them, not just, you know, so some of them were gonna go to, you know, really first-rate university. Some of them were gonna go to an FE college. They all felt good about themselves. They didn't feel that they, that they weren't, that, that, that somehow that their achievements were of less value within that school. So, so for me, when we talk about all means all, that's what I'm talking about. So you can have children that have very complex needs within a school, but I think if you have a child with really severe complex needs, you're not going to put them in the the um, an advanced placement math class. Why would you do that? What would be the point of that? Um, but you can you can have a you can have a a way of working with children within the school where they're accepted. As members of that classroom, or or school community, um, and they and and there are also ways that you can mix things up with peer tutoring. With you know, there are, there are there are no end of ways in which you can work together as a community and people feel valued.
0: Yeah, it's an inspiring story, and it's something that's arguably quite simple. You, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't a real it wasn't really an out there kind of plan, was it? It was just
1: no, but switching up
0: something it, quite simple.
1: but the, but but what you did have was buy-in within the school. So like mm-hmm. the work around inclusion is about you know, it's work with staff as well as with individual teachers or just with children. it's It's really about like the ethos within the school. And you you see that, you know, the way people come together in support of each other or they cover for each other or they plan together. Um, you know, I'm reminded of a school I went to, oh my goodness, it was an open plan school. And those are really interesting because open plan schools tend to, you know, they, they, they start off, um, you know, everyone's very excited about it and then it doesn't take very long before the filing cabinets go up and the partitions. And before long, you've got a really noisy place with a lot of partitions and people thinking, why didn't, what, you know, I, we need walls. Um, But it worked really well in this school. And again, because the teachers were unbelievably tight as a unit, you know, they, they, it wasn't that big a school. They worked together, they planned together and they worked together really well so that it was, it was seamless in that school. But it was also, it was, it was inspiring because I'd never seen that before. And you think if that staff team broke up for some reason, people retire, they move, um, you know, how do you keep that going becomes a question. But I, I do think, you know, that investment in, in the, you know, in, in people and, and giving them some ownership too, because there is no right way or wrong way to do things. Um, just, you know, so enlisting, you know, people and, and trusting that their own ideas, if they value system that they're, that this is being built on is right. And people are open to um, doing better or, you know, the, you know, the care about the experiences that children have. And I think most teachers do. Um, and they're going to be willing to try this stuff. And when they see that it works, then they'll build on that practice. And that's the other thing I say to teachers I work with is this is very imperfect practice. And if you wait for the conditions to be right, you'll be waiting forever. You know, you've got to get started and you've got to grow the practice. And when you get some confidence in yourself because you've, of the success that you've had, you'll be more comfortable in extending that, you know, to, that practice more widely uh, in the other you know, um, either subjects that you teach or people that you work with, et cetera, and other people will be interested in what you're doing because it'll be enjoyable.
0: Wow, fantastic! I think it sounds sounds brilliant. Uh, final question, not an easy one. What are your uh, What are your thoughts on the future of inclusive education?
1: We have inclusive education is here to stay, in large part because of the Sustainable Development Goals. I think that. Personally, I would like to see us um, focus more on how to do it uh, than on agreeing about a definition. I think that we have um, uh, too much um, ink has been spent on... Uh, arguing about definitions and first principles and what it is and what it isn't and etc. And I I would much prefer to see a little bit more emphasis on the actual practices and a little bit more theorizing on the the, the the holistic integrated nature of those practices and and the kind of uh, like furthering that distillation of what's the essence of that how do we share that so the practice grows across different you know contexts again i'm just thinking of Um, A school, uh, a teacher that I met in South Africa, and she was saying, I really love what you're saying, but I've got 65 children in my classroom. And I, you know, uh, she had 100 reasons why she couldn't do this stuff. But the more we talked, we're just in a very exploratory way about, well, if you, if you, these principles appeal to you, let's think about how we can change the groupings in the school. So, well, the, the, I can't change the groupings because the, the chairs and the desks are bolted to the floor. Uh, you know, so so it's not like they can, you, you show these beautiful, um, you know, um, well-resourced classrooms where everything's moves and everybody has their own, you know, trolley and all of that kind of thing. They have none of that. So the more we talked about it, um, two things came out of it. One is we talked about, well, if the desks are bolted to the floor, then can the children sit in different desks for different activities? Like, could you just do that? Um, and we thought about like, like when could she do that? How could she do that? How would she organize that? And the other thing that, so that was something that came out of our conversation, but the other thing that she shared with me, which I thought was amazing was that, you know, here she was in a very poor rural province. Um, and she had a WhatsApp group going with teachers across the region. And so that was where her, the staff development, the sharing resources, the how do you do this, you know, all of that kind of team building work, they were doing that anyway. They were doing that naturally. And so, you know, having then someone come in and encourage that and say, that's amazing. And, you know, what are you learning from that? And what can you share with me about that is really important.
0: Fantastic. Lani Florin. thank you so much for coming on today and for speaking to me. It's been so interesting. And it was, uh, it was great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Richard, and best of luck with the podcast series. It's great.
0: That was Professor Lani Florian. My thanks to her for joining me today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Goal 4. If you did, please share it and share it around. You can also subscribe, listen to a new episode every Wednesday,